0: To go through a holiday like this, there are certain ones that remind us of the privileges that we experience, the freedoms, the liberties, and the the relative peace that we experience here in this nation. Uh, We're reminded of the ongoing war in Ukraine with Russia and hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost or injured through that war. Uh, and now this recent war between Israel and Hamas, if we took a poll today uh, in this room, probably there'd be some divided opinions on what should happen right now. What does justice look like? And what, what are the next steps that would lead toward saving of the, the most lives and protecting people's lives and freedoms and liberties and bringing justice Where it's needed. It was a little over a month ago when this evil terrorist group Hamas attacked Israel, and 1,400 lives were lost. What would you say to a mom, Israeli mom, who lived through that, experienced that, but lost her husband and her family? Um, maybe even trying to save them from some of the rubble. What does what does justice look like for someone who goes through that kind of a traumatic event? Does God care about that kind of pain, that kind of suffering, that kind of violence? And then in Israel's counterattacks, uh, we, we read now reports that 11,000 Palestinians have been killed. And, and because Hamas is hiding among civilians and in neighborhoods, A large percentage of those deaths have been civilians. They are women and children who are suffering. And and so then you flip over and think, what would I say to an innocent Palestinian mother who lost her husband, lost her family, is now now among the million and a half or or maybe more that have been displaced, And, and seeing seeing her people all around just demolished and their, their city, their, their place there devastated. What does justice look like for someone who's experiencing that kind of attack? And Israel's being accused of injustice and of, of committing uh, attempted genocide against this people. And, and we read about those things, and as God's people it's difficult sometimes to know what, what should justice look like. It's it's complicated, it's incredibly complex, and yes, people should be allowed to defend themselves, but then at what cost? And we just you've probably already been in some of those conversations of wondering what should happen, but we also wonder what about believers in both of those people groups? They're probably praying prayers like this right now. Israelis, Palestinians. God, do you care? Do you see this? Can you bring peace? Is that even possible? Do you hear our cries for help, our cries for mercy, our cries for peace, our laments? God, do you care about injustice? Do you care about oppression? Do you care about violence? Do you care about war? We feel some of those things. You probably have. I know I have. And different ones of you have experienced injustice and oppressions and sufferings and trials and difficulties. And I'm thankful that the Bible doesn't hide those from us. Some of the stories in the Bible are brutal, they're sobering, they're difficult, they're complex. The one that we're going to look at today in 2 Samuel 21 is really hard to read. It's hard to understand. It's hard to get our minds around everything that's going on there. You can go ahead and turn there. 2 Samuel 21. As we read about some immense suffering and oppression and and difficulty and justice and the, the angst of, is this what God wants? Is God seeing? Is God acting? As you turn there, just remember chapters 13 through 20 were unfolding the consequences of David's sin, and we saw abuse and revolt, and last week, David Sunday summarized many of these chapters of just the the difficulty and the, the consequences that were resulting in David's family and Absalom as he's revolting against David and then he dies and the immorality that's, that's spreading through his kingdom. And, and so chapters 13 through 20 tells us this, this story of consequence after David's great failure and downfall. Chapters 21 through 24, so we're, we're approaching the end of this series, these four chapters don't continue the story. They're actually an epilogue. They're, it, it's it's Later, it's giving a summary now, an overview of David's kingdom. And so what we're going to read doesn't follow the death of Absalom necessarily. We just know that it happened at some point during David's kingdom. And so let's begin reading verse 1, hearing some of the background, the situation that was going on at this time. So verse 1 says, During David's reign, there was a famine for three successive years. So David inquired of the Lord. That's just the background, but I don't want us to skip on yet because we hear that, we read that, and, and maybe can just quickly brush by without understanding the setting, the, the situation that they were in. What would three years of famine felt like? In, in the United States, 2023, we don't think about famines much. We don't experience that. We don't really wrestle maybe with what would that have done to the entire people, their livelihood, their daily lives. Uh, The closest maybe that we came to experiencing famine uh, were the first few weeks of the pandemic when uh, our Instacart driver couldn't get us as many dozen eggs as we wanted, or the toilet paper was running low, or maybe that time of year when you had to buy frozen blueberries instead of fresh, or your stores out of your favorite cotton candy flavored grapes. Uh, if you've never had those, look that up, try that. <laughs> That's an experience. But we don't, we, modern technology and agriculture, uh, the way that we have access to, fo- to, to food completely removes this experience from our daily lives. There are some places in the world today still. That, that live dependent on good weather and dependent on good agriculture, but we don't. So, so think for a moment, what would that have been like? This, this famine, three-year famine, would have been the cause of many deaths. Parents would have gone days without food because they were saving what they had for their kids. The, the, the physical pain of hunger and the unknown of where the next meal would come from. And so, Society—they would go through a year, and that would happen. You have a bad weather year, and the crops are lower. But but three years in a row, David knows, okay, this isn't normal, and so he turns to the Lord, and he's inquiring of the Lord. The literal wording there is that he seeks the face of the Lord. And so, just before moving on, we're seeing this first layer of suffering is that for three years the people of God are experiencing famine and difficulty, and David then, in the middle of that suffering, cries out to God, seeks the face of the Lord. This is, what, this is one of the effects trials have on us. If you've lived through suffering, you know that it has a way of reminding you of your need for God. We always need him. We're always dependent on him for our next meal, our next breath, for our lives. But some, some things come into our lives that remind us of how desperately we need him. And here's where David was, and so he, he cries out to the Lord. So just, just briefly before moving on, ask yourself, is this heart of desperate need for God something that I'm experiencing right now? Is it only when I'm going through suffering or even in times of of relative ease and good, am I praying to the Lord? Am I seeking the Lord's face? Let's keep going. As David seeks the Lord, as he inquires of the Lord, the rest of verse one says, the Lord answered. That's, that's merciful. That's gracious. Here, we don't always know the reasons for our trials. We don't always know the reason for our difficulty. But here, God tells David, here's why you're experiencing this right now. The Lord answered, it is due to Saul and to his bloody family because he killed the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were not Israelites, but rather a remnant of the Amorites. Now, the Israelites had taken an oath concerning them, but Saul had tried to kill them in his zeal for the Israelites and Judah. So here, as, as we see God's answer to David's inquiry, David's prayer, God tells him, this famine that you're experiencing is my judgment. It is my wrath. It's because of sins, not of you, David, but of Saul, of in the, some, some sins in the past, something that Saul did that I'm dealing with now. We're, we're hearing of a, another layer then of suffering, of injustice, of oppression, of pain. At this point, Saul's, Saul's dead, but yet God is not going to ignore the oppression of the Gibeonites, this people group. Back in the past, it tells us they weren't Israelites. They were a remnant of the Amorites. The Amorites, that's another word for the Canaanites. And so this brings to our mind, if you know the story of the Bible, that the people of God were enslaved in Egypt back in Exodus. And so they are delivered from Egypt, and then they're wandering in the wilderness, and then God brings them into the promised land. And it's during this time that God uses the people of Israel to accomplish his divine judgment on an evil, immoral, violent generation of Canaanites. And God tells them to drive them out of the land and and tells them to kill them. And it's helpful for us. That's a difficult story as well, and we can have other times maybe to to talk more about that. But just, just here, there's a couple things to remember about that. This was a unique time when God was bringing his wrath on sin, on evil, but he did not allow the people of Israel to just kill anyone that they wanted. There were wars in the Old Testament that Israel engaged in that God did not condone, that were not just. And this story of the Gibeonites is one of those stories that shows us that, that this this wasn't just anyone that they wanted to kill was fine and fair game. No, there were, there were people that God protected. And this people group here, it also helps us see that these wars were not motivated by race or ethnicity, that Gentiles always in the Old Testament have been allowed to turn to God in repentance and faith, to turn to Yahweh, to find grace, to find mercy. Rahab is one of the stories in the Old Testament where we see that on display. And then one of the other ones that's, that's so prominent is right here, the Gibeonites. These were Gentiles. And through a covenant that was made with them, through a promise that was made with them, they were to be spared. This was a covenant of peace. It says it right here. There was an oath that was made a promise that was made to this people group. Back in Joshua 9, you can read of that. The Gibeonites actually tricked the Israelites into making this promise, into making this covenant with them. But through that, they were to be spared. And God cares a lot about covenants. In the Old Testament, when you read about covenants, one of the ceremonies that they would often do as they would make these oaths, as they would make these covenants with one another is to cut an animal in half or multiple animals in half and lay half of the body on one side and half on the other. And then they would walk through it as if to say, if I break this covenant, may God do this to me. May God kill me if I break this oath. We do rings and sand ceremonies and unity candles at our marriage covenant ceremonies at weddings. Imagine if the next wedding you go to, the aisle's lined with dead animals, split in half. The couple walks through and says, let this be done to me. If we break this covenant, uh, we probably won't see that. But God does still care about our promises. God does still care about the covenants that we make. And in the Old Testament, they, there were blessings of being faithful to covenant. And there were curses that they would bring on themselves if they were unfaithful to covenant. And so here, we don't, we don't actually, anywhere but right here, read of what Saul did. So earlier on in, in 1 Samuel, we don't read of Saul going in and slaughtering the, the Gibeonites. But here, it tells us that this is something that Saul did, where Saul broke this covenant with this people and he goes in and slaughters them. So the Gibeonites are this minority group, they're living in Israel. Saul and his army goes through and tries to kill them all. God doesn't overlook this. He doesn't say, well, that covenant was 200 years before Saul, Saul maybe didn't know about it. He doesn't say, it's just the Gibeonites, they're just a small group here anyway. He doesn't say that Saul's dead now, and so there's nothing that that can be done about it. No, God does see the hurt, the injustice, the pain of this people group, and he's going to deal with it. He is going to act. In his mercy, God clearly exposes this violent injustice, and he's going to act. And so let's read then, what does David do? David finds out, this is why there's a famine, because what Saul did years ago, so he summons the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Verse three, he asked the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? How can I make atonement so that you will bring a blessing on the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites said to him, we're not asking for silver and gold from Saul or his family, and we cannot put anyone to death in Israel. Whatever you say, I will do for you, David said to them. So they replied to the king, As for the man who annihilated us and plotted to destroy us so we would not exist within the whole territory of Israel, let seven of his male descendants be handed over to us so that we may hang them in the presence of the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen. The king answered, I will hand them over. David spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between David and Jonathan, Saul's son. But the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, is a different Mephibosheth, who were the two sons from Rispah, daughter of Ai, had born to Saul. And the five sons whom Merab, daughter of Saul, had born to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Mahalithite, and he handed them over to the Gibeonites. They hanged them on the hill in the presence of the Lord. And seven of them died together. They were executed in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. This, this is a really difficult, dark story. It doesn't seem clear to me in this text, is this What God wanted done? Is this how God wanted to bring justice? Was by killing, executing these seven? Earlier, David inquired of the Lord. He he was seeking God's will about why is there this famine? But then it, it, it says God does tell him it's because of this past sin. However, it doesn't tell us that God told David what to do about it. Maybe he did. We're not sure. And then later, as you go through this whole story, it doesn't say that as soon as these seven were executed, the famine ends. It's actually not until quite a bit later. Something else happened. More had to happen before God hears their prayers and the famine ends. And then you've got passage in Deuteronomy that says a son should not be put to death for his father's sins. And so Bible scholars, as you read through this, as you listen to, to sermons on this, you actually hear different thoughts. Uh, yes, this is, this is what God told David. This is what David should have done. It was good. Everything that David did was right. And this is just. And, and there's a uniqueness because Saul was king. And so this wasn't just a normal uh, death. But as Saul slaughtered these people, this is, this is God's justice in, in bringing that oppression to light and dealing with it. Others say, no, David didn't ask God, what should I have done? And and he shouldn't have put them to death because they weren't involved. And and others say, well, maybe they were involved and we just don't know. Maybe they did somehow participate with their father in executing or annihilating this this people group. I think that maybe God and the, the author of 2 Samuel here are leaving this intentionally unclear for us. It's, this is a complex story. Parts of it horrify us. Parts of it confuse us. But what it does for sure show us is that sin and evil bring horrifying consequences. And it just spreads. Saul's sins in the past brought devastating consequences to the Gibeonites, As he goes through and seeks to annihilate them, you can can just imagine the pain of of being one of them and experiencing that. And and, and yet also then Saul's sins lead to famine. And so his people are now suffering because of his sins. And now seven of his descendants, two sons, five grandsons are killed. And, And the pain just, it seems like it just keeps multiplying the effects, the consequences, the evil and yet there are some things here in David that, that seem right and seem good that we would want to emulate as he deals with this really difficult problem in his nation. We saw the way that David opened up this, in this prayer, this inquiry, this seeking the Lord's face. That's, we already saw that's something that we should desire. Here it seems like David's humbling himself and, and he's wanting to hear from and listen to the people who've been mistreated, the people who've been oppressed. That's that's something that we should desire, that that we should want to do, to humble ourselves and where we see people, where we know of of individuals or or people groups who have been mistreated, who have been oppressed, who have experienced violence, who have experienced hurt, that we would want to hear their story, that we want to know some of their pain. And, And whether or not David's actions here are are in line with God's will, we can see here that he was not just wanting to, to let them vent, not just letting them get this off their chest. He wanted to do something. He wanted to act. He was pursuing atonement or amends. How, how can we make this right? And so faced with this really complex situation the solution they came to was to execute seven descendants of Saul. And so you think about that number, and you think about just, is this right? Is this fair? Is this what God wants? And just imagine, enter into the story for a moment, and imagine that you are a Gibeonite. Maybe a mother who, when Saul and his army came to raid your people, you, you hid. You had an infant child with you and you hid. And, and, and a- after they leave, as you come out of hiding, you find out that your husband's dead, the rest of your kids are dead, your sister's dead, your family's dead, your, your place has been demolished. And, and you feel this hurt like nothing you've experienced before and it came from God's people this is this is God's king his anointed one leading his people and and supposedly we had this covenant supposedly she would have known of this this ancient covenant that that was the reason for their continued existence here among the people of Israel, but they'd been brought in through covenant and they were not, this wasn't supposed to happen and then it it does and you're left to deal with the the results and to deal with life as it goes on after that and and it seems like God's doing nothing. Saul goes on and lives his life and he dies and, and David becomes king and it just seems like God's doing nothing to care for you and your pain and your hurt and what you've lived through. And and you hear, okay, God's finally doing something. He's bringing this to light. He's exposing this and he's dealing with it. But yet, only seven? We lost a thousand. I don't actually know how many they lost, but it would have been more than seven. They they could have said, why not? We lost a thousand, you lose a thousand. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And, and so this, these, these seven lives, that wouldn't have taken away the, the misery. That wouldn't have taken away the pain. It really wouldn't have fixed the problem. But yet you do long for some sort of justice. And so you can almost just imagine this mom looking at this whole scene and just saying, still just doesn't seem fair. And you can enter into that perspective and and imagine how some of, at least attempt to imagine how that feels. But then the story continues, and we're left with another jarring perspective of another mom in immense grief and mourning and hurt and heartbreak because she's the mom of two of these sons that were just executed. This is Rizpa. And, and she, she raised these boys. She loved them. She fed them. She taught them. She knew their unique personalities. She would have understood some of the inside jokes that they had together as a family. And now she's watching them be executed potentially for crimes they didn't have anything to do with. We don't know. Maybe they were involved. Maybe they weren't. Watching her boys be executed because of Saul's crimes. And you can imagine her in her grief, in her angst, feeling like this isn't fair. This isn't right. Let's read what she does in verse 10. Rispah is Ai's daughter. She took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain poured down from heaven on the bodies. She kept the birds of the sky from them by day and the wild animals by night. Can you begin to imagine the trauma of this mom who for some amount of time, some season, we don't know how long, but, but not just a few hours. This is, these are days, weeks maybe, that she sets up camp as the bodies are hanging there in public shame, decaying, bodies of her sons, and she's there trying to scare off the birds and the animals from eating the decomposing bodies. The, the pain in this story. The angst in this story, as we feel what this mom, as we, we try to feel what this mom is feeling, and all of it, all of it, just seems evil. All of it just seems like this isn't right. And regardless of which perspective you look at, you realize sin brings evil consequences and hurt, and pain, and misery, and death. David hears of what she's doing. Let's read the end of the story here, starting in verse 11. When it was reported to David that Saul's concubine, Rizpah, daughter of Ai, what she had done, he went and got the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung the bodies the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa. David had the bones brought from there, and they gathered up the bones of Saul's family who had been hanged. So these seven. Verse 14, And he buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan at Zila in the land of Benjamin in the tomb of Saul's father Kish. They did everything the king commanded, and after this, God was receptive to the prayer for the land. It's, it's not until here when David brings honorable closure to the whole thing, an honorable closure even to the death of Saul and Jonathan with, with giving their bones, giving their remains a proper burial. It's not until then that it says God hears their prayer for the land. And this is what, this is what just comes, you come to the end of this story and I'm left just feeling like, I don't, I don't know what to do with all this. I know God was in this. I know God has lessons for us here and there are some really clear ones. Justice is being served. But yet, when humans attempt their own means of atonement and justice, it just always falls short. When we look at, when we look at a passage like this, this, this isn't the kind of passage that, that gets posted on Instagram like a cheer up, Christian, uh, God's with you type of a passage. You don't find 2 Samuel 21 there. I don't think 2 Samuel 21's probably ever made it into a Christian greeting card. We <laughs> It's this is heavy. And and yet I'm glad passages like this are here. Because it is complex. It, it, it parts of it do horrify us. Part, parts of it do confuse us. And we're left with with this angst of of just the horrors of sin and evil. And yet life is like that too. The life that we live in this fallen, broken world is complex. And, and passages like this and watching Rizpa go through and experience this helps us understand, yes, the, the consequences of sin, the, the evil in this world, the, the evil that we experience, the injustice that we experience, the oppression that exists in this world. It's complex. Parts of it horrify us. Parts of it confuse us. But we are understanding that all of this comes from the sin and the evil, and and it should make us hate what we see in our lives. It should make us lament the evil that is in this world, in this broken world. It should make us repent of the evil that we see in our own hearts. And where we're lulled into thinking that sin's not really that big of a deal, passages like this open up our eyes to just seeing, no, sin is a big deal. And the sin does spread evil consequences and God's wrath is just as it comes on this world and we fully deserve it. Yet there's only one who can fully atone for the sins and the evils of this world. Our our attempts at at solving justice are are right and God calls us as his people to care about justice, to to care about oppression, But, but human attempts That justice always falls short. And it points us to the one who is the only one who can fully atone for sins, who can only satisfy God's full wrath against the sins of this world. And it points us to the one who hung there in public shame on the cross for us as his mother Mary stood at the feet of that cross, stood at his feet, watched him dying in our place. And now, through his atonement, We look at David's kingdom and we just feel like this this leaves so much to be desired. So much that's still not right. And it points forward to this future son of David who would come and who would make all things new. And in his kingdom, he's going to drive out evil and drive out death completely. Where sin is no more, death is no more, he wipes every. Tear away from our eyes and he turns every wrong thing upside down so we see this passage and we see actually a glimpse of the evils of the pain of the injustices in this world the effects of sin the effects of evil it makes us want to turn from it to realize the severity of God's wrath that deepens in us then an appreciation for the costliness of Christ's atonement. The Old Testament gives us so many images that atonement is costly. The blood of animals that was shed pointing forward to the blood of Christ that would be shed human lives that are lost, pointing forward to the only life that could actually truly atone for our sins, Christ. And so then we're called to to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to turn away from from that sin and to turn to Christ, to look to him and, and to wait with eager anticipation his coming kingdom. We lament the brokenness of this world. We repent of the evils in our own heart. We look to Christ for his perfect atonement. And we wait with eager expectation for him to come and to make all things new. Let's pray together.